Hey, it's Chad here. I'm not sure how to do this, but this episode contains discussions of sexual harassment and sexual assault. I thought I'd put a trigger warning on here for those who are sensitive to such things. It's not graphic or anything, but it is a topic that is discussed. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Dateline, New Brunswick. Mr. Melvin Cosgrove climbed a 30-foot pole and scrambled onto a 6-by-6-foot platform. His goal? To break the world's record in flagpole sitting. That was 16 years ago, and yesterday his wife started wondering how Cosgrove was doing, especially since he was 84 years old when he started. Authorities <laughs> climbed the pole this morning and found that he had indeed passed away. As a fitting tribute to her brave husband, Mrs. Cosgrove announced that for the next 10 days, she will fly him at half-mast. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host who, to the best of my knowledge, has not been kicked off any of his congressional committees, Nick Jackson. I mean, I, I guess I'm pleasantly surprised that I haven't been kicked off of any congressional committees. We are in the back third of the first season already. Yeah. Um, I'm always, like, as, I, as I'm as i rewatching these episodes, I'm always surprised when we hit the end of the episode. Like, I know that they're still in that general 20 to 30 minute range, but it just... But yeah, it's just, we're in the last third and I'm starting to feel it coming up. I'm, I'm starting to work on writing our Emmett Otter episode because <laughs> we're going to tell the whole history of Emmett Otter and you're going to watch it for the first time. And, and it's going to, that I'm so looking forward to that. And we're going to have like, of course, it's going to come out in like May. So we'll have Christmas in May or something. <laughs> but time means nothing this year. It's okay. January was a long year. <laughs> it was a, it was a very long year. These episodes that we watched this week are burned into my skull. Like, I had such triggered sense memory, especially watching the first episode tonight. Mm -hmm. There are images of it, and, and I'll mention them as we go through, that are like tattooed into my brain. I think that's just going to be the case with some of these episodes where some I've just seen more than others or stood out to me more than others. But I had a heavy nostalgia rush watching these episodes. This is a feat of lunatic daring. Of course, we're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. You knew that. You clicked play. We ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and also lunaticdaring.com, which I've done a lot of work on. It's actually a nice looking little website where you can listen to our latest episodes, check out our playlist of different videos, and also our sources page. I'd also like to thank Joshua at Muppet History for tweeting out our preview episode and getting a little attention to the show. He's a really popular and well-liked guy in the Muppet fandom community, and so it was nice to get a little acknowledgement from him. So that was pretty cool. You can't see it, but I'm definitely raising my glass. Thanks. Yeah, no, it was very, very nice of him. Hopefully at the beginning of a little relationship that we can kind of get in with these kind of more known Muppet fans since we're the new kids on the block. We got some good things and some bad things to talk about a little bit tonight, so we should go ahead and get started because I think this is going to take a little bit of time to get through. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Mr. Ben Marine. Woo! So one of my favorite parts of this show has been getting to learn about the guests. Some, like Rita Moreno and Candace Bergen, I already knew a lot about. Others, like Charles Aznavour or Peter Ustinov, I knew very little. Researching Ben Vereen is the first time I have regretted this aspect of our show, because 
It's a fine line to walk between admiring someone's work on screen and being profoundly disappointed by their actions off. Benjamin Augustus Vereen was born October 10th, 1946 in Larenburg, North Carolina, but he didn't know that. As far as he knew, he was born and raised in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn with his adopted parents, James and Pauline Vereen, a paint factory worker and a theater wardrobe mistress. Vereen wouldn't find out he was adopted until he was 25 when he had to apply for a passport. Viewing his birth certificate, he discovered his mother's birth name was Middleton, and for the first time found out that he had been born in North Carolina. According to people who knew his mother, she had gone on a trip when he was an infant, leaving him in someone's care, and when she returned, he was gone. That's all I could find. It seems very vague. I think even to Vereen, it's vague. Um, and Ben didn't even meet the brother and sister he found out he had until the 2000s. At 14, he knew none of this. He was just a kid from bed and he enrolled at the High School of Performing Arts, having shown great talent as an actor and a dancer at a young age. The High School of Performing Arts is better known as the Fame School. The 1980 film was set there, although it wasn't actually shot there. There, Vereen studied under insanely famous choreographers like Martha Graham and Jerome Robbins. He made his New York stage debut at 18 in the play Prodigal Son. Then he was in Bob Fosse's production of Neil Simon's Sweet Charity, toured with it. His Broadway debut was in Hair, the American tribal love rock musical, and he also toured with that. He co-starred with Sammy Davis Jr. in a film adaptation of Sweet Charity in 1969, but it was in 1972 when Vereen was nominated for his first Tony Award, playing Judas Iscariot in the original Broadway production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar, that he truly broke into the big time. Jesus, you started to believe the things they say of you. You really do believe this talk of God is true. The next year, he won the Tony for originating the lead in Pippin, directed by his sweet charity director, Bob Fosse. On TV, Vereen played Chicken George in the 1977 miniseries Roots, the second cast member of Roots I think we've had, and performed controversially at Ronald Reagan's first inauguration, in which he appeared in blackface. It was meant to be part of a larger piece of performance art, criticizing the GOP's civil rights record, but ABC didn't air the second half of the act, where there was kind of a payoff was supposed to be, and so it just left a lot of people offended and, and mostly just confused. Vereen played Will Smith's biological dad on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in a very famous and heartbreaking episode. You know what? You ain't got to do no, nothing, Uncle Phil. You know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm going to be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good at it too, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? Did. Got through my first day without him, right? Mm. I learned how to drive. I learned how to shave. I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 Great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. Down with him! I need him then and I don't need him now. Will. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey. And I'm having me a whole bunch of kids. I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that. Because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? He played Webster's uncle on the sitcom Webster, Jordy's dad on Star Trek The Next Generation, and on How I Met Your Mother, he played Barney's long-lost uncle. So I guess if you needed an absentee African-American older relative in television, he was at the top of casting lists, because that just seems to be what he played on television a lot. 
He had some personal tragedies, as we all do. In 1987, his 16-year-old daughter was killed in an accident on the New Jersey Turnpike. He divorced his wife of 36 years in 2012, you know, irreconcilable differences. And his 55-year-old son, Ben Jr., died just last year in 2020. But here's where it gets kind of rough. In 2018, Vereen was called out in the Me Too movement. Four actresses in a 2015 production of Hair that Vereen was directing alleged that he sexually harassed them during the production. They say he, quote, forced unwanted kisses, stripped naked during acting exercises, and made degrading comments about their weight and sexual appeal. He was also accused of inviting female cast members to his apartment and goading them into sex acts. One woman admits they had a relationship but felt it was coerced, and and another says he sexually molested her around the same time. He would also force them to strip in rehearsals in preparations for Hare's famous scene where the entire cast gets naked on stage, but that scene is usually not fully rehearsed in that way for obvious reasons. In response to these allegations, Vereen responded with this statement. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Quote, I would like to apologize directly to the female cast members of the musical Hair for my inappropriate conduct when I directed the production in 2015. While it was my intention to create an environment that replicated the themes of the musical during the rehearsal process, I have since come to understand that it is my conduct, not my intentions, which are relevant here. So I'm not going to make any excuses because the only thing that matters here is acknowledging and apologizing for the effects of my conduct on the lives of these women. Going forward, my having come to terms with my past conduct will inform all of my future interactions not only with women, but with all individuals. I hope these women will find it in their hearts to accept my sincere apology and forgive me. End quote. He's still alive today, age 74. So it's tough. This stuff is always tough. I think it's important to acknowledge Mr. Vereen's terrible behavior, to highlight his apology, and to allow the listeners and ourselves to make up our own minds about whether or not his work is worth examining. He's an insanely talented and accomplished man, but it's hard to divorce that completely from the parts of him that are far from ideal. We promised we would discuss problematic material, and over the last five years, Ben Vereen has kind of become problematic material. What we're going to do is we're going to just do what we would normally do. We're going to look at this episode in context, because one of the harder things is he's really good in it. I don't want anyone listening to think that we are in any way condoning his behavior. If you don't want to hear about us singing his praises as a performer, completely get it. Skip ahead about 30 minutes and listen to the Phyllis Diller episode. Just thought I'd get that out of the way. I didn't want people to like watch the show on Disney Plus, come and listen to this podcast, and then do something as simple as Google his name and find out all this stuff about him. With that said, let's talk about the episode. Episode 117 uh, with guest star Ben Vereen that I am calling... Crazy Harry's Playhouse uh, was produced October of 1976, aired in the UK in November, and then in New York the following January. I'm not going to tell you who wrote and directed it. If you've been listening to the show, you already know. Before we get into it, this is a really good episode. Yeah. There's, and I'm sure I've said something like this before, as we move through the first season, we get a clearer and clearer impression of what The Muppet Show was going to turn into. And the integration of the guests in these two episodes, it seems more confident. Yeah, there's a lot of things we're going to we're gonna discover over these two episodes that are finally, truly falling into place. After the opening, we come in and uh, Kermit introduces our first act, where we meet a two-headed singer, just a whatnot with two heads, played by uh, Nelson and Hunt, singing a song called Jump, Shop, Boogie, which was a Barry Manilow song. It's actually a Barry Manilow 1976 song. It's a very, very recent hit. I thought this was very funny. <laughs> There's a line in the song. It made you want to jump, 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 jump. 
and he's got all these dancers around him dancing like they're at a sock hop. But whenever it says knock themselves out, <laughs> they'd smash their heads together and knock themselves over. <laughs> Big hit with the kids, by the way. <laughs> they were very much into that. About halfway through, Ben Vereen magically kind of appears. Mm -hmm. I spoke earlier about them being more confident with their use of him. Every scene that Ben's in, he mostly belongs in it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch back on that in a little bit, but he owns every second he's on screen. No, he comes in. He's got his, his star power is there. I mean, he's obviously mostly known as a dancer and uh, that's what he's brought in to do. He kind of just, my daughter kind of like jumped back because she was like, how did he get there? And I'm like, honey, that's just a, that's just a cut. <laughs> that's just a very simple, very simple cut where he magically appears into the scene. It won't be, it won't be the first time he kind of uh, changes planes of existence actually in this episode. But yeah, this is a very, a very fun number. It's a very upbeat song. I'm not a huge Barry Manilow fan, but there's been a couple Barry Manilow songs on here already that I'm kind of like, eh, all right. It's what a great Muppet musical number does is it, it plays this great song. It does it well. It has fun with it, but it's also got so many comedic beats kind of layered in. This one mostly being the fact that the, the background dancers keep knocking themselves out mm -hmm. in a very literal way. And you're correct. Like, it's not, here's Ben Vereen doing this number. He doesn't even sing in it, right? Or does he? He kind of sings at the end, maybe. Kind of. But he's he's mostly there as a dancer. So our backstage story, this is one of the things that is burned into my brain, is the image of Fozzie Bear trapped in a big green box. As soon as that box was on screen, I swear I had flashbacks. There's a big green box backstage that it belongs to Marvel the Magician. And Fozzie uh, is trying to examine it. And Kermit's trying to warn him. That's very interesting. Yeah, but Fozzie, don't go in there. Oh, come on, Kermit. I'm a big bear. I won't hurt anything. Yeah, but, but Fozzie, don't slam that door. I didn't slam it. I closed it very quietly. Yeah, and you're never going to open it again. What, what do you mean? Well, I tried to tell you it's a trick door. Only Marvel the Magician can open it. And Fozzie gets trapped in this big green box that's got a little hole that he can peek out of kind of pitifully. And that's going to be where Fozzie's stuck for most of the episode. Then we get Crazy Harry going off like he's a... Wait, no, I'm not like, I don't, shouldn't say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is Crazy Harry's moment to shine. Or, you know, blow up. This is a very Crazy Harry heavy episode. Kermit comes out to introduce Ben Vereen's next number. Okay, right now I'd like to introduce Ben Vereen, a blockbuster of a talent. Did somebody say blockbuster? Hit the dirt! <laughs> well, there's uh, nothing like starting off with an explosive opening. Uh, hey, listen, you want to have George the janitor clean up that mess? Uh, now, as I was saying, we have a real dynamite guest tonight. Did somebody say dynamite? <laughs> He's in this a lot. <laughs> this leads to, I think, probably the most successful and definitely memorable number from this episode. Interesting. Go on. This is another bit that's completely tattooed in my memory. Ben Vereen singing Mr. Cellophane. A human being is made of more than air. With all that bulk, you're bound to see him there. Unless that personage should be invisible. Inconsequential me. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, should a 
in my name, Mr. Cellophane. You can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. Mr. Cellophane, of course, is a song from Chicago, the musical. It was originally sung by the character of Amos, and it's a song about, you know, someone who feels unseen. Uh, someone who's just not, there's not enough of him there for people to see. You know, he's not flashy, he's not showy. In the act, Ben is basically on the sidewalk, dancing around a bunch of Muppets who don't notice him. Although they hear him, because they're singing along. <laughs> but they can't see him. There's something about this and another one of Ben's musical numbers. Something about the way it's shot, and you know more about cinematography than I do. But the way that Ben plays to the camera, similar, not similar to the way that uh, Lena Horne did, it's, it's fundamentally different. But you can tell that he's a stage actor, and that he's used to directing his focus as though he's on stage. But also, both this and a later number seem like they're shot for Sesame Street. That's not a bad thing at all. I think he, yeah. he does a great job with it. Something about the way it's shot makes me feel like I'm watching a recording of a play. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just feels different. It did feel different. You're right. I, I think it was staged more like you would have it in a, in a Broadway musical. I tell The context in which he's singing the song is very different from the context in the actual musical, in actual Chicago. I didn't know this song was from Chicago until I saw the movie in like 2002, the Richard Gere movie. I've never seen Chicago. My whole life, I've known this song because of this Muppet show. The, the moment where he's, sitting on the, when he's sitting on the curb and the camera's above him and he kind of yells up into the sky, mm -hmm. it, it triggered all sorts of nostalgia in me. I've seen this as I've gotten older, though, and maybe this is a leap, but... I always associate this song and this number with Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. That's an interesting blink. Yeah, I can see that. I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who hunted Edgar Allan Poe. Nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh, and bone. Fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. That's one of my favorite books. And as I as I grow older and I see this, a man who was a, a you know, a Ben Vereen has been, you know, active in civil rights and, 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 and everything. So to see this black man singing a song about not being seen just reminds me so much of the entire conceit of the Ellison novel. Mm -hmm. It's always kind of linked in my head. When I was a kid, though, I just thought it was a cool song. I thought the camera was actually kind of opened up a little bit for this one, though, too. But I, So those were things that I observed. They weren't necessarily critiques. Um, my only association with the song is some kid singing it at a high school talent show. Okay. I mean, you know that my knowledge of musicals barely extends beyond Avenue Q. But, like, you mentioned his star power before. He did exactly what he needed to do for this song. And he did a really good job with it. He's got such charisma. <laughs> 
yeah. on that screen and, and is obviously a talented dancer. But what I thought was was funny about this bit is is that it's not – the dancing's not like spectacular, but that's intentional. Like he's just – he's dancing silly to try to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. And he keeps doing this thing where he does a silly little dance and he looks around and no one's looking at him and he kind of drops his shoulders in disappointment because no one is paying attention to him. But they're singing along. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, so they can hear him. There's an elaborate troll going on. <laughs> They're gaslighting <laughs> yeah. Wolverine. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah, but I, I think this is kind of a classic uh, musical number on the Muppets. And then, of course, at the end of it, he you know vanishes in a in a pretty simple, optically printed shot. But he he vanishes. Um, we come backstage and. Um, Kermit's trying to get Fozzie out of the box very futilely with a hammer. I love them now. I love their their relationship is like, this is the Fozzie and Kermit Mm -hmm. that we all know and love together. Frank's figured it out. Jim's figured it out. And I love them. Fozzie's very sad because he's not going to get out of the box, which means they're going to have to cancel the show. And uh, Kermit disagrees. How shall I break this to him? What? Uh, uh, Fozzie, there is one alternative to canceling the show. Oh, there is, yeah? Well, we can replace you. these things kind of hard i think kermit's got a wider perspective on it he's better equipped to work the problem as we'll learn later he still wants to get fozzy on stage mm-hmm. he does he's not trying to like kick him off the stage he's just like dude we can do this without you we'll replace you we gotta get the show done i yeah. i'm sorry that you're having a rough week but we really need <laughs> that rent check i'm sorry dude i told you not to get in that box i told you not to get in that box Muppet Newsflash, particularly funny one, actually. That yeah, we, this is one of the better ones that I've I've heard. This is the Muppet Newsflashes that I like. No guest star, just a really solid joke. As a fitting tribute to her brave husband, Mrs. Cosgrove announced that for the next 10 days, she will fly him at half-mast. It's a good punchline. Which was a really solid one, like I wasn't expecting it. You know... I, uh, picked up a hitchhiker the other day. Oh, really? Yes, well, it's only right. I was the one who knocked him down. <laughs> we got, uh, a whatnot couple dancing. We got Zoot and Janice, of course, George and Mildred. The loud, I'm, I'm just calling her loud woman. I don't know, she's just a whatnot, but there's the <laughs> woman that's got the really obnoxious voice, like they've yeah. used her a few times. But I think the, the best joke in it was two pigs dancing, and one of them is the, the one that's going to be Dr. Strangepork. You know, last week my cousin was seen on television by 30 million people. Oh, what is he, a rock star? No, a football. Our UK spot I thought was wonderful. So this was really stressful for me. <laughs> Why was it stressful? Because those candles had live flames, and they you kept seeing it, that candelabra move, and I was like, is, is Ralph going to catch fire? <laughs> the first thing on my notes says wobbling candelabra. <laughs> Yeah, like, I, I was looking at it, because Jim likes to end with an explosion. I'm like, he wouldn't put people in danger like that. But this is kind of stressing me out, because I don't want anything bad to happen to Rolf. He just hurt his finger. Is that setting us up? No? Okay, cool. To me, it kind of added to the realism of it. Like, that's not something you would animate. Hmm. It's just Rolf playing for release. Beethoven piece from 1808. 
Of course, for Elise translates into for Elise. Uh, historians have three different women they think could have been Elise, but then it also could have been none of them. This was a piece of music that wasn't released until Beethoven uh, it was posthumously released. So no one actually knows who the Elise is, if there was one. But yeah, Rolf is just playing, you know, what, what I think is probably one of the prettier pieces of music ever made. He keeps, like, stubbing his fingers. He misses a couple of notes. But all in all, it's a pretty good performance of a release. Mm-hmm. It's also technically just really fun to watch. I think they do a great job with the hands. I don't play piano, but it felt it, it felt like he was playing it. He was hitting notes in time. I don't know if he was hitting the right notes, but... Yeah, but that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish I knew. I don't know who's doing the hands in this case. I have to believe that someone's doing both hands. Oh, yeah. Having two people try to keep that up would be rough. We're on the same page. I was looking at that candelabra the entire time. <laughs> I, I, I didn't think it was going to fall over, but it was just a, it was a realistic detail that I enjoyed. My daughter even noticed it. She was like, he's got to be careful. That's going to fall over. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. We have a, uh, a talk spot. I'll say I, I liked what they did with this. We've had enough time away from Crazy Harry that Crazy Harry showing up here doesn't feel sort of forced in. I have a question. Forgive me if this is insensitive. Did every black man with soul in the 70s have to wear his shirt open to his navel? He's got a very Al Green look going on here. First off, that's the Teddy Pendergrass. Secondly. <laughs> okay, sorry. It's the Teddy Pendergrass. Sorry. <laughs> secondly, I have no idea. I think so. Because, like, pictures that I've seen of my parents and grandparents from back then, even if it was just like a polo, you had that unbuttoned. And honestly... I hate buttoning up collared shirts all the way. Yeah, I get it. it. Just If he had been leaning over a little bit further, whatever album he was about to release was probably going to be amazing. Because you had the, what was it? I can't remember which Marvin Gaye album it was. It might have been Let's Get It On. There was an Al Green one. There was a Michael Jackson one. And there was a Teddy Pendergrass one where they were just sort of like reclining with the open vena. I just noticed, I, like, again, I just, it's so, it's just so damn 70s. <laughs> this whole thing is just an excuse for Crazy Harry to blow up the set again. And, um, for Ben to hang from the rafters. As a dancer, he needs to... Uh, he needs explosive power, yeah. Did somebody say explosive power? No! No! <laughs> I loved, loved this joke coming up. When Fozzie is trying to get Kermit to cancel the show because he's stuck in the box. Kermit! Hey, you can't do the show without me. Well, Fozzie, what choice have I got? But, but a Muppet show without Fozzie Bear? It's like Gilbert without Sullivan. Ham without cheese. Polka without Hauntas. Polka without Hauntas? Yeah. What's a polka? I know, I know, that's a polka. Will you guys get out of here? Okay. <laughs> But I, and it's Piggy and George. I don't think you've ever seen Piggy and George dancing together. No, but she's completely committed to it. George may or may not be aware of what's going on, but... They come in dancing to polka music, and uh, it made me giggle. This in tandem with the following sketch makes me wonder if they're just trying to, like, in-universe... George, you gotta do more work. But I, I just want to mop. George, <laughs> you show up on camera, you gotta do more work. Okay, can we polka? I, I guess we can polka. I, I did like Fozzie's assertion was like, he was like, uh, see, even in here, I'm funny. You need me. <laughs> Which I, I will say they are making him funnier. Mm-hmm. Legitimately funnier, not just, oh, he blew that joke. But actually, mm-hmm. sometimes he hits. And now, Veterinarian's <laughs> Hospital, the continuing story of a former orthopedic surgeon who's gone to the dogs. 
I don't know what Piggy's doing at the beginning of this. She's got like a piece of medical equipment on her face that makes her kind of look like a dog. And she's like making snorting, barking noises. So here's the thing. I've never probably done this, but... (laughs) Well, no, no, I've done things like this. Like, I remember being a kid and you just have that idle moment where you're not being observed. Yeah. And your imagination just runs a certain way. I'm trying, I know there was an incident where my mom found my older brother covered in ketchup and just couldn't figure out what the hell he was doing. It's a very funny veterinarian's hospital, though. Mm -hmm. This is the last veterinarian's hospital and the last episode where Richard Hunt is going to do Miss Piggy. She's still been kind of ping-ponging between Frank and Richard. And this is the last time that Richard Hunt is going to do Piggy. Also, the announcer for most of the season, the announcer for Veterinarian's Hospital has been John Lovelady. This is the last time he does that. Jerry Nelson is going to take over that job full-time throughout the rest of the, the, rest of the show. I like the con- the conceit that basically like George <laughs> George was just like conscripted into being in this sketch. Mm-hmm. He does not want to be there at all. And he ends up dying while Rolf practices his bongos. It was all over the place, but it was pretty funny. Dr. Bob, you've given this hospital a bad name. You're right. Fred is a terrible name for a hospital. <laughs> I'll have to give it a better name. How about Eunice? <laughs> this is impossible. Do you have a license? Of course, every dog has a license. <laughs> the leash laws are really rough. <laughs> Next up is Talking Houses. Now, I have been slightly dismissive of the Talking Houses, I will admit. So, this episode, I'd like to be completely dismissive of the Talking Houses. And I'd like to <laughs> And I'd like to ask you a question. Okay. Cuz you know, we're on episode 117. What are your feelings about the laugh track? It came up to me because this is a very, in my opinion, very fairly unfunny joke that gets a laugh, and it reminded me about the laugh track. What What are your feelings about the laugh track? In this particular case, I don't know why I didn't realize it had a laugh track until you mentioned it, but generally I kind of hate them. Yeah. Especially in a modern sitcom or something like that, unless there's a very specific aspect of narrative positioning that's being achieved with the laugh track. It's sort of like uh, a writer telling you how you're supposed to feel about a character. It's just like, don't do that. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole when I started thinking about this. So I just I thought I'd give a little bit of history of the laugh track while we're here, because it is something that's going to carry on through the entire show. The laugh track in American television began with a CBS sound engineer named Charlie Douglas, who in the early years of TV started manipulating the laughter on programs that were filmed in front of live studio audiences by either, of course, amplifying what was there, scaling back things that were maybe too loud or too long, or just flat out putting laughter where there wasn't any. The first single camera sitcom, meaning, of course, that it was shot like a movie and not with a live studio audience, that used a laugh track was the Hank McCoon show in 1950, but it quickly became the industry standard to use a laugh track whether you originally had an audience or not. Uh, Most of this, by the way, uh, was done by Charlie Douglas, who kind of made a cottage industry of it. He would be the guy that you would call in. Others would eventually create their own libraries of crowd sounds, but Douglas was the first and biggest name in audience sweetening for quite some time. The Muppet Show didn't use Douglas. It recorded its own laughs and applause and boos, so they wouldn't be the same ones that people had been hearing for, you know, 25 years. Hanson was reluctant, but justified using the laugh track to simulate the noises coming from the puppet audience that was watching the vaudeville show live in the theater. He cut together a version of the first episode without it, and then one with it, and he viewed them back to back, and he couldn't deny that the laugh track just made it funnier. But he said, quote, I look at some of these early shows and I'm really embarrassed by them. The sweetening got better later on, but it's a difficult thing to do well to create the reality of the audience laughing. 
Brian Henson later noted that people used to call the Muppet Show or call Henson Associates for tickets to come see the Muppets tape live because the laughter had convinced them it was done in front of a live studio audience. (laughs) Which I think is hysterical. Through the years, people kept using the laugh track. It was huge in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, of course. But like you said, it's it's kind of fallen out of vogue with modern sitcoms. It's also used a lot, of course, in animation, where a live audience is absolutely impossible. On shows like the Flintstones and the Jetsons, it was very – Hanna-Barbera used it a lot. Recent shows that still use the laugh track, stuff like Big Bang Theory, Mom, and The Ranch. Now, shows like Fuller House and The Connors, they use laugh tracks, but those shows are throwbacks to the 80s when the laugh track was the norm for any show trying to be funny, so I can't really fault them for that. I don't love them, but I will admit this, that laughter is contagious, and that's kind of the general philosophy behind the whole thing, right? And that is solid. If you hear others laughing at a joke, you are just more likely to laugh yourself. I just wanted to take a second to talk about it because it it wasn't something that we had mentioned before and it's something that's been there the whole time. And I'm usually not aware of it, but when it's something like, My uncle's into poetry. He loves Edgar Guest. Why? Why else? He's a guest house. (laughs) So you haven't even thought about it with the show though, have you? I haven't, but I think that there's a, a greater degree of suspension of disbelief. We mentioned you do actually see a Muppet audience, and... I think that's the key. Mm-hmm. They are actually in-universe in front of a live audience. However, the laugh track also works backstage. <laughs> so it's not always the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought I'd bring that up. Instead of talking about the talking houses. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, we have a blackout sketch. Where Crazy Harry returns. So the thing is, seeing Ben pop up to the rafters once, okay. Seeing it like the same shot twice felt, I don't know if excessive is the right word, but I didn't need to see it. It didn't happen a third time. Yeah. They needed a third beat. Like if you're, if you're going to do it, if you're going to do it though, do it, right? I guess. But even then, I didn't, I don't know that I would have wanted to see it a third time. I didn't really want to see it a second time. Do it a third time with a twist. Maybe, yeah. The third time, it's Crazy Harry hanging from the rafters. Mm -hmm. I kind of agree with you, but I think my problem is that it only happened two times. And to me, when you do a a, a gag like that two times, I'm just naturally expecting a third. I I can see that. Crazy Harry, by the way, there's six six explosions in this episode. Did somebody say blockbuster? Did somebody say dynamite? Did someone send for a short fuse? Did somebody say explosive power? You say you want a big charge? Did somebody say dynamite? No! Then we have our favorites, Wayne and Wanda. Wayne really is kind of in the running for the biggest asshole of season one. We, we can agree. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's absolutely it, – it's barely a competition. Although it is noteworthy that neither one of them is physically harmed during the course of this particular scene. No, just emotionally. Yeah. They come out to sing a song called I Know from uh, – uh, it's from the musical Guys and Dolls. Basically, the first line of it, it's Wayne and Wanda. Basically, the first line that Wayne has is uh, – A more attractive woman walks by and he just follows her. And I just thought it was funny. The meme, the guy with his girlfriend looking back over his shoulder at another woman walking by that has been used, you know, talking about Star Wars to Bernie Sanders and healthcare. This is kind of like that meme in a Muppet skit. (laughs) It is. I I didn't catch it at the time because I was mostly wrapped up in neither one of them being like hit by a mallet or grabbed by a tree or 
sinking or something. I'm looking at the picture from the scene. I think the girl that walks by might be the yelling woman, might be the loud girl from the at the dance. It looks like her. It's got her hair. I think that's who it is. She goes by real quick, but Wayne's just like, oh, hot chick and runs off. He's he's just the worst. Both of them are kind of terrible, but yeah, he's he's the worst. We get our favorite Romani, Hilda, comes to try to comfort Fozzie <laughs> about being locked in the box, telling him. That you will be glad to know that the show is dying without you. Oh, really? Would I lie? Gonzo and Scooter come by talking about. They love me. Me, the great Gonzo. Boy, that's the greatest show we've ever done. She was trying, though. So I lie. So there's a little hatch on the outside. Like, there's a little hole that Fozzie's been looking through. And Hilda says, like, well, at least this hatch isn't closed. And she accidentally closes it. <laughs> and then she just kind of leaves. <laughs> See you, babushka. Hilda! Hilda! But Kermit to the rescue. Because Kermit comes in and says, Fozzie, I figured it out. You're going on anyway. I thought this was really, really kind of cute, though. In the piece with Hilda, Fozzie's hat falls out of the hole when he's like getting pushed in. You know, when she slams the thing, his hat actually falls out. So then Kermit comes and introduces Fozzie and he is wheeled on stage by a couple of pigs in the box, still closed, but with his hat on top. <laughs> and he tells a couple of pretty standard jokes. I spent the whole day at the doctor. I said, Doc, it hurts when I do this. He says, don't do that. <laughs> Are you laughing? It's hard to hear. <laughs> he's, just so, he's just so sad. And he's actually getting laughs, but he can't hear him. Then, you know, he does such a good job that they bring him out to take a bow. They tilt it forward. I was expecting them to drop it. I was expecting them to drop it so fast. Like, I actually thought that was kind of a missed opportunity. Why doesn't it fall over? <laughs> they just must not have had time because that just seems pretty. <laughs> then we get to our musical finale in a song that may be familiar to people. It's one of my personal favorites and actually probably one of the first songs I've recognized on the show. It was uh, Pure Imagination, uh, which I know of primarily from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Ben comes out to uh, Droop, but uh, Droop is just hanging out and he's just talking about everything is so dull. And Ben comes in to cheer him up. Oh, hi, Ben. Hey, look, I can take you out of this place. You know? Oh, no, thanks. I'm not allowed to cross the street. Oh, no, no, that's not what I mean. Listen. Come with me. And you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Pure Imagination from Willy Wonka, of course, from the 1971 film, written by Leslie Bricuse and Anthony Newley. They actually wrote that song over the phone in one day, nice. the two of them. It's probably the most famous song from Willy Wonka. I know when Gene Wilder died, that was like the song they used for the like farewell montages. What we'll see will defy explanation if you want to view paradise simply look around and view it anything you want to do it you want to change the world there's nothing to I'm going to make a confession. I've only seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory once. Interesting. I've seen the Tim Burton one more. I, I get it. I've never actually seen The Wizard of Oz, but I've seen The Wiz a bunch. Everyone's got weird blind spots. Willy Wonka is not a touchstone to me, is all. Oh, it absolutely is. Like that and Blazing Saddles have cemented Gene Wilder 
as one of my favorite actors of all time, Gene's version of it is still going to be more iconic to me. Oh, of course. Of course. So going back to the the Mr. Cellophane sketch in this sketch, is, and it's probably not helped by the, the tiny dribble Muppets, but like this definitely felt more like a Sesame Street sketch than it did a Muppet Show sketch. I can see that, yeah. The green Muppet in the background at the end, have we seen him before? Or them before? I I don't know. I was trying to figure out. They're just a whole bunch of monsters. Now, some of them are Kuzbanians. Of course, he's also joined by some of the members of the Muppaphone. If you want a new paradise, simply look around and do it. Anything you want to do it. Want to change the world, there's nothing to it. I don't have, like, a, a personal connection to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but I know this song. It's just not something that I watched as a kid very much. Imagination living there, you'll be free if you truly wish to be. I think he kills it. Oh, yeah, he did a great job with it. I think he killed it. He made it his. Yeah. We can't finish this episode out without one more explosion. So, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure Ben Vereen was ready to throw hands with Crazy Harry. Because at the end of it, you saw him sort of like, look, you've already done this twice. I can only be nice for so long. So maybe this is kind of the third payoff. Mm. Kermit's coming to say goodnight. Fozzie is like, I got free. Somehow off screen, Crazy Harry blew up the, the box and got him out of it. Hey, Kermit, Kermit, Ben, Ben. Yeah, hey, wait, I'm wait, out, wait, I'm wait, out. Wait, Fozzie, how did you get out of the cage? Oh, Crazy Harry blew it up. It hurt a little bit, but, you know, I'm okay. Well, well, Fozzie, I just, uh, I just thought the show was just dynamite yeah did somebody say dynamite no we end with a bang as we we do sometimes when we're talking about the muppets i watched the episode and i thought he was fantastic and then i did the research on him and found out you know that he'd had this recent troubles and then i watched it again and i still thought he was fantastic so you know you kind of that's the thing though is pablo picasso was an absolute terrible human being Yes. He was still a really talented painter. He was. There's just something when the person's still alive Mm -hmm. and when it's still recent, it's just a little pricklier. And again, that's a prickly subject. And we're all trying to, in this new age of at least a little more social accountability for things, we're having to deal with this stuff. We're having to deal with, is it still okay to watch Woody Allen movies? What about that Kevin Spacey movie that I like? Can I reference Louis C.K. jokes? Like, these are questions we're all still wrestling with. How to separate the art from the artist. Mm. It's a very good episode. And like I said, tattooed into my soul. It's so part of my DNA, this episode. Especially the Mr. Cellophane number. Introducing guest art, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you, Miss Phyllis Diller! Episode number 117, Phyllis Diller, produced October 1976, premiered December or February, depending on your side of the pond. What do you got on Phyllis Diller? So I'd heard her name a lot. Like she's one of those fixtures of, I guess, older culture that I actually would have been aware of, if only in a a tertiary sense. Phyllis Diller was born Phyllis Driver on July 17th, 1917 in Lima, Ohio. She grew up Methodist, but would later identify as an atheist. She studied piano for three years at Columbia in Chicago before transferring to Bluffton College to study history, philosophy, psychology, and literature. So she would sort of 
present herself as someone who was kind of ignorant or very self-effacing, but she was pretty widely studied. She met her future husband Sherwood Diller and married him in 1939, and as a result did not finish college, but dropped out to take care of their five kids instead. They moved as a family to Alameda, California, and she finally got around to working in broadcast by getting onto the radio in 1952 at KROW Radio in Oakland, California. She also started filming a number of 15-minute segments for a series called Phyllis Dillis, The Friendly Homemaker, which was just like a a parody advice sort of show. She debuted as a stand-up act at age 37. At the time, there weren't a lot of female stand-up comics. She did so well on that first booking. She was initially booked for a two-week stint, but it ended up turning into like an 89-week booking. Her comedic style was... I don't know if it's fair to call it self-parody. I think she was more doing a caricature, but there's like this sort of absurdist form of femininity in the 70s. And so she would talk about how unattractive she was or how undesirable or any number of other things while leaning very heavily into, I guess, what the ideal is supposed to be. To me, she felt like if Don Rickles made fun of himself, like she was like an insult comic, but she was insulting herself. But even then, like there's like, I don't think it counts as observational humor, but it almost seems adjacent to it. Like, every punchline she has, or every time she, she riffs on herself, she's really just discussing some aspect of societal expectations. Yeah. And I'm not someone who's necessarily studied in social trends and the ways that they're upended. But I, I could recognize that, like, as she's doing all these things, as she's poking holes effectively in herself, and she, she laughs like she's in on the joke, but she's kind of poking holes in the audience at the same time, because you don't laugh at these jokes if you don't understand that degree of expectation. But she released multiple comedy albums in 1959 and 1960. She was mentored by Bob Hope, and she traveled with him to Vietnam as a part of the USO show in, I believe it was 1966. She was also someone who appeared on Laugh-In, along with Ruth Buzzy, and she was a regular on Hollywood Squares as well. Did a lot of Hollywood Squares. She's very famous for being on Hollywood Squares. So we were talking earlier about the crossover between television and movies and how that wasn't really a thing at this point in time. But she did a lot of low-budget low movies. I don't know how famous Splendor in the Grass is. I've heard the title parodied a lot, and that's where we're going to leave that. But that was one of her first... I think that might have been her very first role. She was in Splendor in the Grass? She had it was a cameo role, but okay, because that's was, a, that's a big movie. I I believe you. That's Elliot <laughs> Elliot Kazan uh, directed that. That's Warren Beatty and God, I want to say Natalie Wood. That was like an Oscar nominated drama. She had a three month run on Hello Dolly in 1969, um, and she would continue acting in a lot of television roles. She would go on to do a lot of voiceover work. She played the voice of the Queen in A Bug's Life. Oh yeah, which I might that might have been the first time I heard her name, but I. She totally was. I didn't even... Yeah, I forgot about that. Okay, Ada. Now what do we do? Uh... Oh, don't tell me. I know it. I know it. What is it? We relax. <laughs> right. Oh, it'll be fine. It's the same year after year. They come, they eat, they leave. That's our lot in life. It's not a lot, but it's our life. <laughs> <laughs> she was one of many, many famous voices on Captain Planet. <laughs> I never watched Captain Planet. But if you look at that IMDb page, you'll be like, wait, that person had a voice on this show? She also was on Robot Chicken, Family Guy, Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, Cow and Chicken, and Hey Arnold, and the Powerpuff Girls and Animaniacs. Like, she she stayed active through and beyond my childhood. How dare you rush past the Animaniacs? <laughs> I, I love the Animaniacs. 
There was a documentary made about Phyllis Diller's last performance, and it's called Goodnight, We Love You, The Life and Legend of Phyllis Diller. It came out in 2004. Rip Taylor, Don Rickles, Roseanne Barr, Lily Tomlin, they were all featured in this documentary talking about Phyllis's legacy. She was a major influence, not just because there were so few, but she had refined her craft very well. We'll see in the episode that she's actually coaching Fozzie a little bit. Starting in 1997, she started to see a lot of health problems. Her heart stopped in 1999 during a hospital stay, and she got, like, there was a bad drug reaction to a pacemaker, which caused her to get paralyzed, although she would be able to walk again through physical therapy. She did pass away on August 20th, 2012, at age 95. Not her style necessarily, but her, like you were talking about, her kind of attitude on stage. I think you can trace that down through, like, Joan Rivers. Oh, absolutely. And all the way down to someone like Amy Schumer is in the family line of someone like a Phyllis Diller, where, like you said, they use self-effacing humor to kind of turn the... It's kind of like a, I'm saying what you guys are thinking. Mm -hmm. She was also, like Joan Rivers, very upfront about her plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. That was part of her persona. Almost campy at times. Oh, yeah. She leaned into that for sure. But I think you get a good sense of her in this episode. Oh, yeah. No, she was phenomenal. After the opening theme, we again, I just can't help it. I'm loving it. We get Fozzie and Kermit on stage together. We get Fozzie trying to usurp Kermit <laughs> and smiling as he does. Oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Muppet Show. We've got a really terrific show for you tonight with our super extra special guest star, Miss Phyllis Diller. Now, to get things started, we... Excuse me, there seems to be a frog on the stage. There is supposed to be a frog on the stage. There's supposed to be a bear back in the dressing room. Oh, well, you see, see, I think you just worked too hard, frog of my heart, so I thought I would introduce the show this week. Okay, fine. You introduce the show and I will pull the rope. The rope? What rope? Uh, the rope for the trap door. The trap door! <laughs> so good it's so good just very classic comedy with the the trap door Fozzie's getting a little bolder mm -hmm. he calls him frog of my heart again which is a little nickname Fozzie has for kermit that i love and i think piggy calls him that too so maybe it's a frank oz maybe frog of my heart is frank's nickname for jim i could absolutely see that it's a great use of the frame again it's mm -hmm. more of jim's his pioneering of television puppetry as opposed to stage puppetry where Kermit goes off and then comes back in holding the rope. Very well staged, very well played. Again, these guys are wonderful. We get our opening musical number featuring the return of the Gugalala Jubilee Jug Band singing Mississippi Mud. When the sun goes down and the tide goes out and the people gather around and they all begin to shout. Nineteen twenty-seven song, actually written by uh, Harry Barris and James Cavanaugh. It was actually first sung. This is what I found interesting. It was first sung by Bing Crosby when he was a member of Paul Whiteman's Rhythm Boys. Whiteman was a, a big-time band leader and composer who was like really huge in early jazz, kind of like a Benny Goodman type of guy. I, I did a little reading on him. I went down a little rabbit hole because I'd never heard of him. From what I can tell some people like think he was like a great jazz band leader and some people think he was elvis interesting in as far as appropriating black music that tracks he's a white guy a white band leader it was in his name right <laughs> you're absolutely correct <laughs> 
Paul Whiteman's Rhythm Boys. And um, pretty much his entire orchestra was black. And so he was accused by some of appropriating, making money off people's backs, whatever. But then at the same time, Duke Ellington thought he was one of the greatest band leaders of all time. So make up your own opinion about Paul Whiteman, who's probably been dead for 50 years. Sun goes down, the night goes down, the people gather around and they all begin to shout. Hey, hey, Uncle Doug, it's Beachy Beachy Beat on the Mississippi Mud, it's Beachy Beachy Beat on the Mississippi Mud. A very standard, entertaining opening musical number for the Muppets. This is the type of thing I expect to see. I think this is a bit of a sped up version of the song because it is super fast. I want you to talk about the backstage story because you're 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 a fan. I I think Hilda's really really sweet, and I love Hilda. I did not realize that Hilda was thirty five. Well, that's the joke. She is not uh, framed as though she is thirty five, but she's she's feeling empowered in that first part because she met Phyllis Diller and she thinks that it's. We don't see her meet Phyllis Diller ever. She doesn't have any scenes with her. I guess she doesn't actually. You're right. Hilda's entire story for this, and it is, I, I agree with you, it's great that Hilda has her own story for this episode. Like, she's the star of this episode. But the, she talks about Phyllis Diller and how young she looks, which is kind of funny. But they actually have no scenes together. She constantly references having conversations with her, but they never see each other. So I actually believe that Hilda never met her. <laughs> I think she's completely I think delusional. She met her, because, like, there's also. The well, we'll get to it in a little bit, but I, I absolutely buy that Phyllis is interacting with the Muppets when oh, of course. she's not on screen, like, and yeah, because she she forms a bond with Fozzie as well. I, I mean, granted, she kind of does that on screen, but even outside of that, I think there's also an aspect of this that's reminding me a little bit of uh, the land of Gorch and specifically like the later sketches where they aren't actually in Gorch but they show up in other SNL sketches asking why they're not showing up on other things, yeah, because a large Part of, I guess, the crux of Hilda's arc is not feeling like people really see her. Yeah, Hilda Hilda wants to look young again. I will point out at the end of this bit, she says that she's 35 and Scooter turns to Fozzie and says, hey, Is it possible Hilda's 35? Only around the waist. <laughs> and then they look at the camera like, ah, and like, yeah, it's a little not great. I don't know if I've ever seen, like, a full body shot of Hilda, but she's always seemed kind of petite. Listen, a 35-inch waist is not gigantic. It's not. Right. But in the 1970s, when you've got models like Twiggy, who's actually coming up in a couple weeks for us, that are all very skinny, you know, it's meant to imply that she's – I don't know if it's – if it comes across as a little bit of a mean joke, it's also clever. So, it's kind of hard to, you know. I did write down that if she's 35, she has some hard living. Imagine this. Imagine she was like a groupie. <laughs> She's just lived, man. Straight out of Romania. She's been following around the electric mayhem for about 40 years. And after a certain point, she uh, didn't know what to do. Actually, <laughs> yeah. not 40 years, like 10 years. She's been following around electric mayhem. And yeah. on the other side of it, she didn't handle it as well as Janice did. But she also <laughs> found a new home in the Muppet Show. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> then we get, say, Phyllis's showcase. Yeah, this is... It's probably fair to call this a showcase because it's a long bit. Yeah. Like, I feel like it, it went on for a while. I didn't mind it because she seems so at home with all of the Muppets there. Yeah, she comes into a bar and uh, Rolf's playing piano and she sits down across from him and they, they basically pull a Deadpool where Ryan Reynolds and Marina Vaccaren are talking about how awful their lives are. Childhood. Rougher than yours. Daddy left before I was born. Daddy left before I was conceived. Ever had a cigarette put out on your skin? Where else do you put one out? I was molested. Me too. 
uncle. Uncles. They took turns. I watched my own birthday party through the keyhole of a locked closet, which also happens to be Your my... bedroom. Lucky, I slept in a dishwasher box. <sighs> you had a dishwasher. And that's pretty much what this is, is they're comparing how big a losers they are. My favorite line was... Hey, let me buy you a drink. I don't drink with strangers. I'm Phyllis. I'm Ralph. <laughs> Ralph makes a, another Lassie reference. Yeah. It's just them going back and forth with self-deprecating jokes. Do you know, someone gave me a beautiful white mink stole. Within a month, I had developed black dandruff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that is depressing. But you, did you know that my fleas have started wearing dog collars just to get rid of me? Oh, I know the feeling. I was in the backyard singing, Twinkle, twinkle, little star. It fell on me. I went to a taffy pool. The taffy won. I swear if I bought a new hat, they'd cancel Easter. But there's a, there's a joy to it, though. Yes. This is Phyllis Diller to me, by the way. If you were to distill Phyllis Diller's humor... Her persona and everything, it would be this. I, I could absolutely see that. She seems completely at home doing it. But there's this, um, so I grew up playing dominoes. It's probably the game that I know best, but there's this aspect of it, which you don't see in poker or a lot of other games where table talk's kind of encouraged. Like you're supposed yeah. to give grief to the other players at the table, but typically that's going to take the form of criticizing their plays or trying to psych them out, uh, psych them out a little bit. Typically you won't hear something like, this is why your wife left you. There's a camaraderie that comes out of the smack talking that you'll see at that table. And I feel like it's sort of inverted here, but it still has the same effect. I'm going to do a little name droppy humble brag here. You know who taught me how to play dominoes? Oh, you're about to make you mad, aren't you? Who was it? Don Cheadle. Can you set up so that I can play Don dominoes with Don Cheadle? I would I be so happy. I haven't seen him in a very, very long time. But uh, I, I worked on a movie with Don and um, him and there was another actor who was a supporting actor in it and they would play dominoes at lunch and he taught me how to play. And uh, basically, yes, it involved that and then it, it involved more expletives that I'm willing to put out on this show. <laughs> that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. I learned, I learned how to play dominoes from Don Cheadle. So Jealous. I mean, I, I'm happy that I learned from the people that I learned from, but. Mouse himself. Yeah. Terrifying and charismatic. It's amazing. What happened? I had no time to be tying him up easy. What? You just said don't shoot him, right? That's right. Well, I didn't. I just, I, I choked him. What? Well, how am I going to help you out if I'm, if I'm back here fooling around with him now? Easy. Look, if you ain't want to kill, why'd you leave him with me? So then, uh, old Hilda, that's how she describes herself, has decided it's time to become young Hilda. And she disappears into a dressing room and there's a Superman, super, what I call a Superman cut, where she closes the door and then instantly opens back up and she looks different. She's wearing a long, kind of auburny wig, I guess. And she's like, Everybody is going to be so surprised. They won't even recognize their old wardrobe mistress. Hi, Hilda. <laughs> hey, the opening number costumes are downstairs. Would you bring them up here, please? And then again... I could be wrong. Her first stab at the Fountain of Youth doesn't go so well. Here's a Muppet news flash. Here's a, here's a criticism I'll lay at a lot of these Muppet news flashes. Whenever they do these interviews, uh, the newsman is interviewing Mrs. Beverly Shepard, who's played by Phyllis, who um, I think a very funny joke, but who has made aviation history by uh, strapping a pair of wings to her arms and flying to Dallas, Texas. In all of these sketches, 
when they have these kind of yokels on the news, they always give them give them southern accents. They do, don't they? I feel like I got to stand up for my family. <laughs> Actually, not my family. Sorry, I th- feel like I got to stand up for my friends and, and my wife's family. There are just as many morons in Ohio or California. I was about to say in the Bay Area, there are just as many morons. It feels like a fallback, and again, in the seventies, it was kind of shorthand for for a, for a yokel. But uh, I just noticed she was kind of doing a pretty bad Southern accent. But I thought the punchline was funny. I just made my wings out of aluminum and I covered them with chicken feathers and then I fitted them with straps for my arms. Yes, yes, go on. Then I went out to the airport and boarded a plane for Dallas. (laughs) The newsman in this one was just exasperated. He just gives up. (laughs) He's just he's just done with it. crazy about you i can't see straight <laughs> oh i'm so goofy about you i can't eat <laughs> oh i'm so much in love with you i i can't even sleep oh well, what should we do chicken to a hospital man i know normally i kind of gloss over at the dance but i want to talk about this one first of all stotler and waldorf are dancing together randomly uh, finally good to get out of that box yeah pay attention i'm leading <laughs> Two, three, dip. Oh. <laughs> Waldorf uh, dips Statler, not animal style. <laughs> oh, that makes me want in and out. That's where my mind went. I don't actually love the animal style fries, though. I think I'm weird. Oh, I, oh, I double double animal style. Oh, mm, damn you, East Coast. Janice, uh, there's a. By the way, we in the, I think last episode, but definitely in this one, we have a new new Janice puppet, a new build for Janice uh, that looks a little better. Janice is actually dancing with Green Frackle and not Zoot. Zoot is still in the sketch, kind of just bopping around, making jokes and playing the saxophone on the dance floor. I have a theory. So to this point, it's always been Janice and Zoot dancing. We know in the future that Janice and Floyd are going to be a couple. So my narrative is they've broken up and she's dancing with the Green Frackle to make him jealous. And he's just kind of hanging around being sad and trolling her a little bit. Because he's at the dance like he usually is. Zoot's usually in these, but he's alone now. <laughs> and we get the uh, our UK spot. You know I'm going to be down with this because it's just the electric mayhem. Playing a song called Lazy Bones. It's actually just Dr. Teeth, Floyd, Zoot, and Janice. There's no animal. Oh, lazy bones. Sleeping in the sun. I expect to get your day's work done. Never get your day's work done Sleeping in the noonday sun Lazy bones Sleeping in the shade I expect to get your cornmeal made this is a Johnny Mercer song. It's kind of a jazz standard that's uh, been recorded a lot. Now, it's considered a Tin Pan Alley song. This is a phrase I think I've used a couple times on here. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't 100% know what it means, so I looked it up. Because Jim loved this type of music. Tin Pan Alley was a collection of New York music publishers and songwriters who kind of dominated popular music in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It started around 1885. If you think about the Tin Pan Alley sound, let's think about songs like this. They produced Babyface, Give My Regards to Broadway, Let Me Call You Sweetheart, My Blue Heaven, 
sweet Georgia Brown over there. Take me out to the ball game. Uh, and like, yes, we have no bananas. Like songs like that. Songs that are kind of like turn of the century Americana that have a very particular sound. And there's a lot of songs that we kind of that we've seen that are considered kind of Tin Pan Alley songs. And actually, one of the things that made him when we get to Emmett Otter, Paul Williams kind of writes in that style. Just something to point out. But it's it's just a really cool musical number using some really kind of fun split screen effects as the mayhem just jam out on this song. Loafing through the day, how you expect to make a dime that way. Do you know what makes this talk spot unique? No Kermit. The only one all season with no Kermit. Just Phyllis and Fozzie talking shop. Phyllis is just giving Fozzie advice on how to be at on jokes, and Fozzie can't quite grasp the idea of making stuff up for his jokes. He's got to tell the truth. <laughs> Which I respect, but also that might be counterproductive. Fozzie can't quite wrap his head around telling a joke that isn't 100% true, which is only something that applies to this scene. I'm sure yeah. he's going to tell plenty of jokes. So that- much of his humor is real situational. But in this scene... I can't do that joke. Why? I don't have a husband. What about a wife? No, no wife. Well, make one up. They don't care. What? Me- I... I couldn't do that. I couldn't lie to the audience. I, I, they love me. I love them. I couldn't lie to the audience. Well, you just did. You told him you're a comedian. <laughs> now, looky here. We've got to find you a topic. Okay, topic. Aha. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. okay, you must live somewhere. Uh, well, yeah, I got this small apartment. Terrific. Small apartment joke. I live in an apartment so small, the mice are hunchbacks. <laughs> no, 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 I, I got a mouse, but he's not hunchback. He's got the gout. Hey, that was a good pivot. So then his joke is I live in an apartment so small, my mouse has the gout. It was good. It was it was a couple of stand-ups talking shop. Uh, and it had a nice little jab at politicians at the end there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but politicians lie. That's the punchline. <laughs> really? Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe. Now we get Hugga Wugga. Hugga Wugga. Hugga Wugga. Hugga. So, my dad's really in love with the idea of being a grandpa, and whenever he talks to my nephew, he always goes, Hugga Wugga. <laughs> and I didn't realize it might have been a reference to this. I don't know if he realizes that it might be a reference to this, because he was definitely, like, he would have been watching the Muppet Show when it was on. Yeah. I'm now always going to associate him with that purple monster and like the moving eyes and there's nothing he can do about it. <laughs> well, this is um an iteration on a sketch called Scrap Flap. Scrap Flap. Which was something they did on the Ed Sullivan show and a couple other shows that was a very similar premise. This is just kind of that bit, just a little more fleshed out, where you have what basically looks like Coosbane. That's what I thought it was initially. A creature that they just call Hugga Wugga, who you can actually see, like, if you look closely at him, you can see the mechanism in his nose that they use to shoot Mm -hmm. out the air. He keeps singing. The music actually is by Joe Raposo. He he says, you know, he keeps just singing. And then another beast shows up. Wiggy, wiggy. And tries to sing something different. 
and he basically bullies them into singing, singing Hugga Wugga with him using his snout steam. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. They, they use it so many times, but I don't know what to call this thing, this superpower that some of these monsters have where they shoot steam out of their snouts <laughs> and that somehow overcomes their enemies. But it's a very common Muppet. Kind of reminds me of, uh, I can't remember what the character's name was, but in Super Mario 2, there's the one that, like, shot eggs. Yeah, there is. Out of the snout. Then another alien shows up, and he starts singing, You Are My Sunshine. I don't think I have to explain You Are My Sunshine. It's originally recorded by Jimmy Davis and written by him and a guy named Charles Mitchell back in 1931. It's uh, And actually, Davis, who sung it, would eventually become the governor of Louisiana. And it's the official state song of Louisiana because of that. This creature is like very happily singing, or not happily, like meek, like sweetly, I would say, singing You Are My Sunshine. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. Hunga Wunga! And this very much upsets Hugga Wugga. This one also uses the frame really well, I thought. Well, especially with all the fog being present. There's one point where he tries to take a shot at the cute alien and he misses and then the alien pops up on the other side of the frame and stuff. It reminded me, there's a little bit of the Menomina mm-hmm. thing going on. Again, really demonstrating their use of the television as their stage. He finally does use his snout, steam, whatever you want to call it, and seemingly knocks the head off of the cute alien. Mm -hmm. And you actually see the head go flying off if you look. Yep. (laughs) But then his head's turtled down into him and he keeps singing. And eventually, Hugga Wugga goes up and tries to listen closer and closer and closer, and then he fires back. Do not take my sunshine away. It's, it's a solid bit. Like, I don't think any part of it really surprised me. I was totally distracted by the fact that I could see the nozzle in the monster's nose. So after Hugga Wugga, uh, we go back and Hilda, poor Hilda, is still trying to look younger. She's taking some beauty tips from Phyllis and uh, still nobody notices. Hilda's Miss Elephant. You could read it charitably that they, they don't care what she looks like. They just mm-hmm. like Hilda, which, I th- you know, Kermit's going to say later. She was very angry, though, that Fozzie didn't notice. Now everybody will notice the change. Hilda, Hilda, it is great. The change is wonderful. Oh, you like it then? Oh, sure, yeah. Those dressing room towels have been dirty for a week. It's wonderful that you changed them. (laughs) This means all out war. I'm like, with who? (laughs) Like, who are you going to war with? (laughs) I thought that was a strange reaction to this. So here's my theory. We, we have a Muppet Labs. The only reason Bunsen gets an assistant is so he can do terrible shit to that assistant, right? Because instead of taking it himself. Watching this particular one, it seemed like Bunsen didn't actually want to activate any of the traps, which makes me wonder if Kermit was offstage with a gun. Just like <laughs> watching him and making sure he did the bits. 
I also wrote down that in this sketch, Bunsen Honeydew is like James Bond's Q, but without a purpose. He's created an exploding hat, exploding earmuffs, and a self-destructing necktie. That's the thing about it, too, is like he, he keeps taking those hits and he knows he has to see it through. And he knows exactly what's going to happen. It's not like he's Billy Blanks there, sitting there like, but wait, there's more. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take the next slash. Thank you, sir. May I have another? With no discernible purpose. He eventually has to get Beaker in there to, to take the hits. Because, like, yeah, you're right, though. Bunsen is kind of, like, begrudgingly just taking hits. <laughs> I was watching this with my daughter, and she was like, what are these things supposed to do? Why is he making these? And I'm like, I don't I don't. So, so we can laugh. <laughs> we have a blackout with Phyllis and Gonzo discussing her pocket camera and her photograph she takes of pockets. I thought this was kind of corny and a waste of time. It's a one-note bit. Uh, veterinarian's hospital, I wrote down yet again, no idea what Piggy's doing when this starts. She has a surgical mask on. This is the, I believe, the first veterinarian's hospital where Oz is playing Piggy. Every other time it's been Richard Hunt, which means we now have Jim and Frank in veterinarian's hospital as well. Um, Janice is still being played by Aaron Oscar. She will leave at the end of the first season and Richard Hunt will start playing Janice. This one starts off with a great joke. Your next patient is ready. Yes, yes. Oh, I was just tending to an emergency. A musician at the symphony just fell through his harp. Oh, where is he now? In rooms 9, 10, 11, and 12. And uh, the patient this time is a loaf of bread. It's the same one from the... Uh... Asnivore. Thank you. Some of the veterinarians' hospitals are kind of meaty and like have like a, you know, a good running time. This one was over way too quick. Didn't really settle into any kind of rhythm. Um, it was just a couple jokes about eating his patient, basically. So we get back to poor Hilda and uh, Kermit's backstage and he sees what he thinks is a beautiful woman with a long blonde wig and wearing this kind of purpley dress. I did note, not great, that he compliments her that saying that she's so slim. Again, going back to kind of the waist joke earlier, you know. And that's sort of the crux of this entire bit is she's, uh, is she wearing a girdle? or Yeah, she's, like wearing, yeah she's wearing a girdle to make her look younger. She mentions she's wearing very tight foundation garments is what she calls them. And then it cuts to a single of Kermit because you could tell they didn't have they weren't sure to ha how to actually do it exploding on screen mm. so it cuts to Kermit and then a bunch of buttons hit him and then you cut back and her dress has kind of exploded oh darn my girdle had a blowout <laughs> oh that's okay Hilda we love you like you are anyhow well the old gray mare is just what she used to be we like you at 35 <laughs> It's a very sweet moment uh, from Kermit. When you did, when you were telling me about Phyllis Diller, you mentioned that she studied the piano. Did she also play sax? God no. <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs> I should I should walk that back. I have no idea if she played the sax. And after this last bit, I'm still not sure. Pretty sure she didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, apparently, it's hard to make sound come out if you have no idea what you're doing. So maybe she did. Reed instruments are very hard to make any kind of sound out of. So for the finale, um, Phyllis is accompanied by the Muppet Orchestra, um, which is Rolf, Animal, uh, Zoot, the pig that looks like Strange Pork, Nigel, Floyd, and Trumpet Girl. Um, missing, however, is Crazy Harry. Crazy Harry is also part of the Muppet Orchestra. He plays the triangle, but uh, he was not in this one. And they play, uh, it's a ragtime track uh, called The Entertainer. It's from 1902. Uh, written made by uh, written by Scott Joplin. It was a, it was a kind of a ragtime hit back at the turn of the century, but actually in the seventies it became a top ten hit because it was the theme song to The Sting. 
it was kind of part of the score of that movie. And it actually became a top 10 hit because of that. And that was 1973. So while in this, they are playing a song that is 70, at this point, 74 years old, they're actually, it's actually kind of timely and hip (laughs) to be playing it in 1976. So the joke of this is that the orchestra, they're playing the entertainer and Phyllis has to keep hitting the, I don't know if you'd call it the chorus or the refrain or whatever, but she has one line that she has to keep hitting, right? She does not sound great on the saxophone. (laughs) But she's committed. She is 110% going to just own whatever note happens to come out of the other side of that instrument. And that's the gag, is that she's out of tune and doesn't know what she's doing. She plays this little physical humor in between. She gets her, her tongue stuck on the reed at one point. And yeah, they just kind of play this, and then it kind of pays off at the end where Zoot comes out with his sax and kind of shows her up. Zoot looks really offended at the for a minute there. Uh-huh. <laughs> he looks disgusted. <laughs> like, what are you doing? It was a nice closer because it's none of her being here felt forced. Zoot's one of my MVPs this season. Oh, yeah, he's great. Anytime he's on screen. It's funny, uh, you know, Dave Goals is obviously known most for Gonzo, but Zoot's a much bigger presence in season one than Gonzo is. Mm-hmm. And then we have our wonderful callback as um, Kermit comes out to say goodnight. Would you do me a favor? For you, for you, I would do anything. Oh, how nice. Would you stand over there on the other side of me? Uh, stand over here. Right over there. Sure. Yes. Slowly, Fozzie comes in holding the same rope that Kermit used to open the trapdoor. Is this okay? That's just perfect. Hmm. Okay, well, friends, as I say, it's to the end of the show now, so thank you for joining us and join us next time on the Mo- That was a nice way to close that circle. She's in on the joke and he goes down through the trapdoor, but then, and then they say goodnight, but then Fozzie falls too. See you next time on the Muppet Show. We don't usually talk about the tags uh, at the end, which I think we should probably more, but the Statler and Waldorf tags at the end of every episode. But this one ties in directly because Waldorf says that he loved the show and then Statler pulls a rope and he falls through a trapdoor in the balcony. Yeah, I wasn't 100% like excited when I saw Phyllis Diller was coming up, but she was wonderful. Yeah, she was great. Next time, grizzly ghouls from every tomb are closing in to seal your doom. <laughs> I could not be more excited for our next episode. It's going to be a good one, for sure. Episode 119, Vincent Price, Thrillers Vincent Price. (laughs) And then episode 120, the great uh, comedian Valerie Harper. Thanks, everybody, for listening at Lunatic Daring on all your applicable social media sites. We're releasing episodes a little more frequently now. We're, We're doing three a month. We're really making our way through The Muppet Show, and it's it's been exciting, so I want to get them out there. And with it now on Disney+, Plus, the hope is people will watch it on Disney+, Plus and then come here and learn about the episode. Until next time, uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Hoda. 
and a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Fantastic show. Brilliant show. By the way, your pants are on fire. <laughs> 